Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of Oreophagus, where they said to him, We may know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world of justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of Areopagus, also a woman called Damaris, and a number of others. Well, thank you very much. Cherry. So then, in November of 1955, the American evangelist, Billy Graham, was scheduled to preach for eight days at Cambridge University in England. The University Christian Union had rented out the largest church in town, which is called Great St. Mary's, and it's there for you on the screen. And they had basically scheduled Billy Graham to preach every night for over a week. However, Billy Graham was terrified about going. 
Uh, he had previously been slated by the British media on a number of occasions, and there were leading politicians and even leading people in the church in the UK uh, who were opposed to his mission. Um, in the midst of all this, he also had very grave doubts about the message that he would preach in such a sort of esteemed and uh, intellectual context. Uh, he wrote um, these words um, to someone he knew. Uh, I do not know that I have ever felt more inadequate or totally unprepared for a mission. As I think over the possibility for messages, I realise how shallow and weak my presentations are. In fact, I was so overwhelmed with my unpreparedness that I almost decided to cancel my appearance. But because plans have gone so far, perhaps it is better to go through with it. Well, I wonder if you have ever struggled or wrestled with the same questions that were plaguing Billy Graham. Wondering, what does the gospel really have to say to my work colleagues or maybe my classmates who just seem so clever and so intellectual? Uh, my friends are all Ivy League graduates. Um, the message about Jesus just seems so weak. What does it really have to say to any of them? Well, I think these are the kinds of questions that we are thinking about this morning uh, as we come to Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17. Um, if you look at it, we read from verse um, 16 that Paul is basically on a layover in Athens while he's waiting for his um, friends Silas and Timothy. And we need to remember here, of course, that Paul is basically in the cultural, intellectual and religious center of the ancient world. Athens was filled with so many temples that one ancient writer even said that it was easier to find a god than a man in ancient Athens. Uh, names like Aristotle, Plato and uh, Socrates were all part of uh, Athens' great past. It was filled with the most wonderful architecture and beautiful buildings. Even if you visit Athens these days, um, you can still see the remains there of the Parthenon, the uh, Temple of Athena, um, which is regarded as one of the great wonders of the ancient world. The people in Athens, well, they loved um, discussing and debating uh, different ideas. As uh, Luke notes there in verse um, 21, uh, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to um, the latest ideas. And so here we really do have somewhere that was right at the heart of the intellectual, cultural and religious world of Paul's day. Uh, we read here in verse uh, 17 and 18 that, uh, that this was where Paul was preaching the gospel. We're told it was the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He gets into a sort of disputation, obviously, in the marketplace with uh, this group of uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And the result is that Paul is basically asked to speak before the Areopagus, which is a sort of kind of grand religious council, really, that uh, met at a place called Mars Hill. And uh, we can see Paul's speech uh, recorded there for us in verse uh, 22 down to um, 31. And so what I would like to look at this morning with you is really the question, um, how do we engage our culture with the gospel? How do we engage our culture with the gospel? Now, of course, our culture here in Hong Kong may be very different indeed to places like Cambridge or Athens. Um, but uh, as we, we will see, I think um, some of the same principles are readily transferable to us. So then I'd like us to uh, look at the um, 
points there on your notice sheets from Paul's speech, and the first of them I've called Connecting with People. And in many ways, this is a very similar point to the one that we made a few weeks ago when Paul was at somewhere called Lystra. Uh, if you rem remember back then, we were sort of talking about the importance of finding an entry point, the importance of finding a way of making contact, uh, the importance of finding an on-ramp or a way in for the gospel when we are talking to people about Christ. I think that's uh, exactly what we see Paul doing again here. So in verse 22, he begins his uh, speech by saying that he can see that uh, the people of Athens are very religious. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 23 to um, say that as he walked around, he happened to find an altar which had an inscription on it to an unknown God. Uh, we need to remember that Athens would have had many thousands of altars to probably uh, many hundreds at least of uh, all different gods. But there uh, in the corner, among them all, Paul found one that was dedicated to an unknown god. Uh, a number of altars like this are referred to in the ancient world, and you can see a picture of uh, one of them there uh, on the screen, which uh, archaeologists have uh, uncovered uh, in Rome. And really the basic idea here is that the Athenians didn't want to offend any of the gods. Uh, they wanted to give all the gods the, the sort of worship and the offerings and everything else that uh, they felt they deserved. Uh, but what would happen, they wondered, if you missed out a god by accident? That would be really bad, wouldn't it? Or what happens if there was a god somewhere out there that they didn't know about? Would he really be annoyed and really offended that he hadn't been worshipped? Well, the solution that they basically came up to was, up with was to have these altars to unknown gods. And uh, that way all the gods were happy and there was uh, no risk of any of the, the gods being offended or left out. It all feels very pluralist and very tolerant. Well, the, uh, the, uh, that was what was basically in the Athenians' minds. But Paul, of course, knows the truth and uh, he sees here an opportunity for the gospel. These Athenians that think they are so clever are actually here really acknowledging their need. There is something out there that they do not know, that they are ignorant of. Uh, they don't know everything after all. Uh, there's at least one God that they do not know. And so Paul sees his way in. As Paul says here, you are ignorant. You may think you're really clever, but you're ignorant. You're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And so hopefully you can begin to see how Paul uses this kind of altar of the uh, unknown God as an entry point for the gospel. Paul saw this altar and he knew that it was an entry point that he could use uh, to connect people with the truth about Jesus Christ. And so what is there in your life at the moment, I wonder, that speaks to you about your need for Christ? You may be here this morning and there's a very obvious entry point for God's work uh, in your life. Uh, maybe you need help with parenting or your marriage is struggling or you feel guilty or you are lacking hope or you have some other great need and this great need that you have is re really causing you to cry out to God. Well, all of those things are possible entry points, really, for God's work in your life. That's really highlighting your need of him this morning. Or maybe we could perhaps begin to think about some more cultural entry points, perhaps. 
many people here in Hong, Hong Kong, I think, are exhausted and uh, basically want rest. Uh, we've had many long months of COVID, and it's really great that things are now beginning to recover a little bit. Um, but many people still, I think, long for rest. Where is true rest really to be found in the midst of all of the craziness? Uh, most of the things that we look to that seem to promise rest uh, really don't seem to actually yield that deep-seated quiet, that deep-seated peace and that deep-seated assurance that we really crave. Well, Paul would, would say you're ignorant. You're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Well, maybe another application here would be the sermon introductions that we use here at Ambassador. So if you've been coming here for a little while, uh, you've probably noticed by now that uh, we do try to find a way in each Sunday morning, um, a way into the Bible passage that really connects with where, with where our culture is at. Uh, so we'll try to, try to start with an interesting question or an anecdote or maybe a news story that really attempts to connect with people. Now we aren't doing that, believe it or not, because we're trying to be funny or because we're trying to be clever, or because we're trying to show how trendy and relevant we are. No, rather we are trying to connect with people. We're trying to actually do exactly what we see Paul doing here at Mars Hill, which is to try and find a really good on-ramp for God's word, a good way in for the gospel that will really help us to connect um, um, people with Jesus Christ. Of course, so we need to depend on God in prayer, which is very important. But I think Paul reminds us here, though, that we also need to actually work hard, uh, particularly uh, if we are communicating the gospel. Uh, we need to do the hard work of listening to our culture, the hard work of uh, listening to people and really getting to know their lives so that we can introduce them to Christ in a way that they can really resonate with uh, and begin to um, understand so then, that is uh, the first thing that we need to do to engage our culture with the gospel, connecting with people. But then we also see here that Paul moves on to do something else, which I've called correcting wrong views. And this really brings us then to the main body of Paul's speech from verse 24 down to verse 29. Now, I need to make clear that we're not saying here that the very first thing that we need to do when we're talking to somebody about Jesus Christ is to begin to correct all the wrong ideas that they have. No, uh, as we've just seen, we need those entry points. Uh, we need to be listening carefully. But what we are saying here is that if we're a Christian, we do need to know the truth about God so that we are able to talk accurately about God to other people when the time finally comes. Remember, here in Athens, there was this sort of huge gap in people's understanding. Uh, people had no concept at, at all of the biblical God. It's actually possible that to start off with, they thought that Paul was actually talking about two gods, uh, Jesus and the resurrection. There was this big gap. They had no concept at all of the biblical God. And so, first of all, Paul kind of has to dismantle their wrong ideas about God negatively before he's able to actually build up and positively put uh, right ideas about God in their place. And, of course, all this is very relevant indeed for us here in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, we encounter people from many different religions, many, many different backgrounds, people whom in many cases have little or no knowledge at all, or even wrong knowledge, of who the Christian God actually is. When somebody uses the word God, for instance, 
it is not even clear what they actually mean by that. And it may be that the God that they are thinking about and the concept that they have of him in their minds when they use the word God may be completely different from uh, what we mean when we use the word God as Christians. And so um, all of this is very important for us. Uh, Who actually is the Christian God? What is he like? Uh, Do we maybe have wrong ideas about God that need to be overturned um, exactly um, like these Athenians did? Well, uh, let's have a look at what Paul says here. And uh, first of all, we see what God is not like. And uh, so looking at the uh, passage, we see in verse 24 that God does not live in temples built by human hands. God does not live in temples built by human hands. This is a really common misconception that people have. They think that God lives in a temple, and we see this in uh, many, many countries here in Southeast Asia. Uh, That's where people go to worship. That's where people go to pray. However, even if people have some kind of Christian background, they may still think that God lives in some special holy place. Those people that call churches God's house, for instance. Or they think that God lives in somewhere like a um, cathedral, uh, or perhaps a place where they'll go on pilgrimage. Um, In some of these places, they even have uh, notices there that tell you that you need to whisper, or that you only need to speak in very low tones. You need to talk very quietly. They may even have special areas that are roped off because those are the extra special holy places where God really lives. But here Paul would say, no, God does not live in a house built by human hands. Rather, God is the one who's built a house for you. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Then in the next verse, so verse 25, we also see that God is not served by human hands. Uh, Again, this is a misconception that many people have about God. We've all seen temples or sort of shrines, maybe, where people leave little offerings of food for their God. Uh, In some cultures, they even dress their God up in different clothes on special occasions. But again, Paul would say, no, you know, God has no need of offerings or gifts of food or clothing from you. He he doesn't need huge numbers of priests to keep the whole rigmarole going. Actually, we are dependent on him. He is not dependent on us. Then, uh, number three, uh, we also see here that God is not far away. Uh, We see this in verse uh, 26. It it, uh, says that God made all the nations from one man. Uh, God rules over their history and geography. And he does all this because he loves people and he wants to get to know them. He wants them to uh, reach out to him. As it says in verse 27, he is not far from any one of us. And then he actually goes on to quote a pagan poet, uh, somebody called Epimenides from 600 BC, uh, who apparently said, for in him, uh, we live and move and have our being. Again, this is a misconception that many people have, that God is way out there, that he's aloof, that he's uh, remote, that he's distant from them. Uh, They think that God is uh, far off. He's maybe hiding in some remote corner of the universe somewhere. Uh, And so we talk about um, seeking God, um, or as if it's almost inconceivable that anybody would ever manage to actually uh, reach him at all. But again, Paul says that we've got that whole way of um, thinking wrong. The problem is not that God is hiding from us, but rather that we are hiding from him. 
The problem is not that God has moved far away from us, rather the problem is that we have moved far away from him through our sin and rebellion against him. God loves us, God cares for us, God wants a relationship with us, but yet through our sin and rebellion, our hearts have become hardened and darkened and we have become alienated from him. But yet, Paul says the truth remains. In his love and grace, he is not far from any of us. He knows our hearts, he can hear our prayers, God is everywhere, he's omnipresent. Uh, in fact, God may be much closer than you think. Then uh, lastly, we also see that God is not like an idol, which is man-made. And uh, this is really the point of uh, verse 28 and 29. So uh, another of these uh, pagan poets who Paul quotes, uh, this time it's someone called Aratus, has uh, um, said, we are his offspring. And then verse 29, uh, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And so Paul's uh, clear point here is that God is not like an idol, which is man-made. Uh, if you think about it, if we are made by God, and we are as complex as we are as human beings, then how on earth could God be a dumb idol made of gold or silver or stone that we would actually build? That just wouldn't make sense at all, would it? No, if we are made by God, then surely God has to be much greater than we are. God can't be something that we construct and build and make up for ourselves like an idol. Well, that's Paul's argument. It is also something that's expanded on at great length uh, in long passages in the Old Testament. Uh, so the prophets, for instance, in uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and other places too, they go to great lengths to make sure that we know that idols are something that are built and constructed and are made by people, and therefore they are not real gods at all. Uh, take, for example, uh, this passage in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verses 3 to 5, where Jeremiah says, For the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree down from the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. Uh, they adorn it with um, silver and gold. Uh, they fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it, it won't totter or fall over. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. Uh, they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Now, of course, uh, idols can harm us if we use them as a replacement for the one true God. But hopefully you can see clearly there what Jeremiah is saying. It's the same as what Paul is, is saying uh, on Mars Hill in Athens. Uh, idols are man-made. They are not real. They cannot speak or walk. They cannot do any good. Uh, neither are they capable of any harm. They are useless idols, and therefore the worship of them is foolish. And so we clearly see here what God is not like. Um, really briefly, we also need to have a quick look at what God is like. Uh, so what ought we to know about God and what ought they to have known as well? Well, if we look at these verses again, uh, we see first of all that God is the creator. That's there in verse 24. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord of all. In verse um, 25, we see that God is the sustainer of all things. Every breath you take, every meal that you eat is ultimately because you have a God who is providing what you need. He rules over the nations, that's verse um, 26. 
and uh, here's the one who is close to us. That's there in verse 27. God is not far away. God's rule over history has a purpose, and his purpose is that people will come to know him, that they will uh, reach out for him. And so uh, hopefully you can see here that Paul corrects the wrong views of the Athenians about God. Now, of course, the, the big question for us then is, uh, how do we apply all of this to our, ourselves? Well, when it comes to correcting our own wrong views about God, uh, that's actually relatively easy. Uh, it may take time, but a healthy diet of listening to God's word, the Bible, being preached and reading good Christian books um, will gradually renew our minds. But what is much harder to think through, obviously, is, well, how would we correct somebody else's wrong views or wrong ideas about God? And this passage, I think, reminds us just of the importance of that, just the importance of clearing away some of the misconceptions that people may have so that they're in a much better place uh, to understand the truth about Jesus. So how would we do this? Well, if we knew somebody really well, we might be able to ask them, well, what do you believe about God? And that could pr provide us maybe with a way in. It might give us an opportunity to sort of very gently and lovingly um, show them how the Bible's view of God is actually different to what they currently believe. On a more general level, I guess, we might get opportunity to ask someone, well, how are your beliefs working out um, for you? Um, I'm interested in uh, why you hold to the, this particular set of beliefs. Uh, why do you find them so compelling? I mean, do you think maybe there's other ways of looking at these things? Or uh, is this what you've always believed? Uh, maybe if you have a little bit more time, you can say, well, can I have the opportunity to actually share with you how I kind of um, view life and uh, how I put all the pieces together and so on. Uh, all the while, I guess, seeking to very gently and lovingly move somebody a little bit further down the road towards the truth of who God is. Now, you may be here and you're thinking, well, all of these things just feel uh, completely beyond me. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'm even having these kinds of conversations with anybody at the moment. Well, you can still pray. Uh, you can pray that uh, God might open the eyes of people that uh, you know so that they can come to see the truth about the true and living God uh, rather than the foolishness of idols. So then, uh, we've seen that if we're going to connect our culture with the gospel, then we need to connect with people. And we've also seen that uh, we need to be able to correct wrong views about God. And there's one last thing, of course, that we need to be doing as well, which I've called pointing to Jesus. And this really brings us to the conclusion of Paul's speech in verse um, 30 and 31. So let's uh, remind ourselves of what these verses say, uh, the sort of the conclusion really to what uh, Paul was saying here. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Uh, verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So then, we see um, three things here, and the first of them is repentance. What is God's attitude to the nations and their idols? Well, we see there in verse uh, 30 that in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. 
That wasn't because God didn't care about the idols. It wasn't because God didn't know about the idols. Um, rather, it was because of his great patience. As we're told elsewhere, so 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, that is, of coming again, uh, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so God is patient, but yet he also urges all people everywhere to repent. Repentance just simply means a change of mind that leads to a, a changed life. Uh, a 180 degree turn. We're going down one way and then we turn around and go the opposite way. Instead, a changed mind that leads to a changed life. It means that we change our minds about sin and then it leads to us turning away from our sin towards God. Um, notice here that repentance is a command. Now, it's not an optional extra, but something that God says that we must do. Now, he commands all people everywhere, which certainly includes all of us here in this room, to repent. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, it's right here. He commands all people everywhere to repent. The way to really think of it is if you're on a, a um, sinking ship and the captain of the ship says, you need to put on your life jacket right now. That's the kind of thing that we are talking about here. It's a command that needs to be obeyed if we want to be rescued on the last day. Why is this important? Well, of course, the very next verse tells us, and uh, the reason is because God's judgment is coming. Just because God has not sent his judgment in the past does not mean that God's judgment is not coming in the future, Paul says. Uh, the reason we need to repent is because God's judgment will definitely come. A day will come when each one of us here will be held to account. And we're told a number of things about God's judgment here. We're told that it will be righteous. God, we are told, will judge with justice. And no one will ever be able to accuse God of being unfair. We are also told that God's judgment will be universal. God will judge the whole world. All peoples from all times and all places will give an account to him. Uh, no one will be exempt. And then we're also told here that God's judgment is guaranteed. We're told that God has already set a day when he will judge the world. And then we are also told that God has revealed to us the identity of who the judge will be. Jesus will be the judge, and God has actually given proof of this by raising him from the dead. So then our second letter R is the word resurrection. When we think of the resurrection, I think most of us like to think of new life or joy or new hope. But uh, have you noticed here that, according to Paul, one of the implications of Jesus' resurrection is that he will return one day to judge? That's what Paul says here so clearly. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves that he will also be the judge at the end of time, on the last day. How can we be ready for this judgment? Well, as we've already seen so clearly, only by repenting and turning to God while there's still time. As uh, Paul says elsewhere of the uh, Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 to um, um, 10, they tell you, um, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who does what? Who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, 
in the end, Billy Graham did go to preach uh, at, at his mission at Cambridge University. He says that for the first three nights, he felt like he was in a straight jacket. He had no freedom, no liberty, and nothing at all happened. Although, actually, interestingly, a quarter of the university was turning out each night to hear him uh, uh, preach, which by the um, standards of these days is just simply incredible. Uh, he, he then goes on to uh, recount uh, what happened next. Then on my knees, with a deep sense of failure, inadequacy and helplessness, I turned to God. My gift, such as it was, was not to present the intellectual side of the gospel. I knew that. What those students needed was a clear understanding of the simple but profound truths of the gospel, our separation from God because of our sin, Christ's provision of forgiveness and new life, and our hope because of him. And so the next night he preached again a straightforward gospel message on the meaning of Jesus' cross. And that night 400 students stayed behind and were interested in becoming Christians. Uh, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, I think it's a great reminder of the importance of preaching Christ uh, exactly like we see Paul doing here at Mars Hill. He connected with people. He was willing to correct their wrong views and wrong ideas about God. And then he preached the gospel. He preached about the coming judgment and the need for repentance. And he called people to respond um, in Jesus' name. How did the Athenians respond? Which is our number three um, response. Well, we can see in verse 32 that some were dismissive. They laughed at Paul. They thought it was hilarious, all this stuff about the resurrection. Uh, in particular, Epicurean and Stoic uh, philosophers uh, didn't actually believe in, in any kind of uh, afterlife. And uh, therefore, the idea of the resurrection was um, just simply laughable to them. As others of them delayed their response. They said, uh, we want to hear you again, Paul, uh, on this subject. And then we read finally in verse 34 that some of them decided, they decided to believe in Jesus and follow him, including uh, Dionysius, who is a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, uh, and a number of others as well. The question, of course, for us is, well, uh, how will we respond to God's word this morning? If you are here and you haven't ever trusted in Jesus for yourself, then the clear command in this passage for you is to repent. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that judgment is indeed coming. The captain said, you need to put on your life jacket and you need to do it right now. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Don't be like those who think it's only a, a false alarm uh, or that there's plenty of time. And then for those of us this morning who are Christians, I think the challenge here surely is for us to align with the Apostle Paul. Uh, we have a model here of how to engage our culture with the gospel, uh, even although uh, we may often feel very inadequate and unprepared. Will we seek to connect with other people as we have the op opportunity? Uh, as far as we can, will we seek to correct uh, wrong ideas about God? And then when will we be faithful to the gospel? And will we warn people about the coming judgment and the salvation that is available to them in Christ? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word to us this morning. 
We give thanks for the model that we see in this passage of how to engage people um, with your gospel. Father, we do pray for opportunities to humbly share about you um, with those who maybe don't know you uh, in this coming week. Uh, we ask that, like Paul, that you would help us to communicate the truth about you and that there might be many, many people here in Hong Kong who would repent and would seek refuge in Christ uh, from the judgment to come. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.